Thank you for joining us on the Hope Church LV podcast. We're excited you came across this message. The sermon you are about to listen to is from our Easter weekend 2022. If you're joining us for the first time, I want to be the first to say, welcome to Hope Church. Go ahead and open up the Hope Church LV app or visit hopechurchlv.com and click connect with us to fill out a short digital connection card. If you haven't done so already, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast to help spread hope to the world. Once again, thank you for joining us today. There are 7.9 billion people currently on planet Earth. Those that study such things tell us that by the end of this year, the beginning of next year, we are going to clip 8 billion people for the very first time on planet Earth. But here's the reality. Every single one of them is unique. If you look up the definition of the word unique in the dictionary, it's defined this way. Being the only one of its kind, unlike anything else. I want you to turn to your neighbor, and I want you to look at them, and I want you to say to them, I am unique. Tell them there is nobody else on planet Earth like me. Look at them. Tell them. All right. Now look back up this way. Now that is not just self-help jargon. That is a scientific fact. There is science to back up the statement that every single one of us is unique. Maybe when I say that, some of you immediately think about things like DNA and fingerprints. DNA and fingerprints make every one of us unique. Every human genome is unique. Each of us is made up of between 20 and 25,000 genes, and the combination of those genes separates you from every other person on the planet. Your fingerprints are a set of lines and ridges, and even if you have an identical twin... That twin does not have the same fingerprints that you have. Maybe when I said there's a science behind the fact that we're all unique, you thought about DNA and fingerprints. But I I researched it this week, and there are other scientific ways that we are unique. I learned something I didn't even know about. I heard about something this week called the microbiome. Anybody know what that means? Yeah, some of you read too much. (laughs) Let me encourage you to do something tomorrow. Go outside. A microbiome means that each person's gut is a unique ecosystem with a multitude of different bacteria doing things that right now you cannot even begin to imagine. As a matter of fact, every one of us has roughly 100 trillion bacteria in our gut right now doing stuff. yours happens to do stuff during the service the bathrooms are over here to my left and your right but your microbiome makes you unique nobody else in the world has the unique ecosystem that is residing inside of your gut just pat yourself on the belly in pride right now your taste 
Did you know that every one of us have between two and 10,000 taste buds in our mouths? It's why every one of us, when we taste something, sometimes you taste something and you love it and somebody else doesn't like it. I, I never have understood that, why you just don't like it. But it's because we have unique taste buds. My taste buds were born in the South, so I have Southern taste buds. <laughs> Which means if you can grow it and kill it, we can fry it and eat it. And that is wonderful to my taste buds. Every human being alive today or every human being that has ever lived is unique. However, our uniqueness is in the same ways. We're unique in our DNA, our fingerprints, our taste, our microbiome, but the way that we're unique is the same. There is one person in history who stands unique above all others. And he is unique in a way that is unlike any of the ways that we are unique. As a matter of fact, he is the reason why in every corner of the globe and in every culture on the planet this weekend, there are people gathered in rooms like this singing because he lived. The reason we celebrate Easter is because of this one who is so unique. His name is Jesus. If you have your Bible, open it to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, we are reading the account of the first public eyewitness testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. After his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus made appearances to his disciples. He ascended back to heaven. And then his, his, his followers in Acts chapter 2, for the first time on a Sunday, get up and proclaim the fact that Jesus is alive. So we're reading this weekend eyewitness testimony from people who understood and learned about the resurrection of Jesus with firsthand experience. They saw it with their own eyes. They heard it with their own ears. They experienced it with their own life. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse number 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. That's an important line. We'll come back to it in a minute. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosing the pains of death because, I love this, it was not possible for him to be held by it. I want to share with you this weekend three reasons why Jesus is so unique. 
three reasons why there is no one else like Jesus. Number one, there has never been a life like Jesus's life. The witness here, Peter preaching this message, making this declaration, opens it up by saying, first of all, that Jesus was a man. Notice how he begins. He says, listen to these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man. He's describing him as a real person, someone who they knew where he was from. They knew his family. They'd been exposed to him. Many had seen him and heard him and been, uh, had encounters with him. There's some people who immediately discount the message of Jesus because they think Jesus is some made-up, fictitious person like a superhero in a Marvel movie. But the writer here, of the one that's proclaiming this eyewitness testimony, begins by telling us that Jesus was a man. He was a real person. He was a person that was born. He had a place that he was from, Nazareth. He had friends. He had family. He laughed. He cried. He ate meals. Jesus is a real person in history. So much so that even non-Christians acknowledge this reality. H.G. Wells was a famous English novelist, teacher, and historian. Listen to what H.G. Wells said. I am an historian, I am not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that the penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of human history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. It's not an evangelical scholar. That's not a preacher of the gospel. That's a secular historian and writer who by his own testimony is not a Christian. And he says, Jesus was a real man. But he was not just a man. Jesus was no ordinary man. He was unique. He was unlike anyone else. The Bible tells us, the witness here tells us, Peter says he was attested by God. Look back at verse 22. He says, a man attested to you by God. The word attested is a word that means to show publicly. And the way it's used here in this text of Scripture in the Greek language, it's used in a tense that describe, it describes what God did through Christ was so profound and so convincing. It happened in history, but it reverberates in eternity. Like, we're still talking about it 2,000 years later. How did he attest him? Well, the Scripture says that he did it through mighty works and wonders and signs. Mighty works, what are those? Well, it's the word most often translated in the New Testament is miracle. It's the supernatural activity of God unleashed in the middle of everyday life. Did you know that there are 36 recorded miracles that Jesus performed in the New Testament? 36 recorded. Now, one gospel writer tells us there's a whole lot more stuff Jesus did that's not recorded in the Bible. But, but the ones that we have, there are 36 recorded miracles. And when I say miracles, listen to what Dr. Greg Boyd says, who has his master's from Yale and his Ph.D. from Princeton. He said the radical nature of his miracles distinguishes him. It didn't just rain when he prayed for it. We're talking about blindness, deafness, leprosy, and scoliosis being healed, storms being stopped, bread and fish being multiplied, sons and daughters being raised from the dead. Jesus was attested by God. He was shown publicly to be unique by God through these supernatural wonders that he performed. He demonstrated power over nature, over disease, over demons, and over 
death. But then the Bible says wonders. The word wonder comes from a Greek word that means to keep watch. And it notes that these extraordinary events that happened through the life of Jesus were so unique that they were kept in the memory, that you never forgot them, you never got over them. The word signs means the finger marks of God, meaning those are things that happened through Jesus that identified him as being God. And it's important to note that when Peter made these claims... Maybe you're here and you're somebody who would put themselves in the category of being an atheist or being an agnostic or being an intellectual who's kind of opposed to faith. Well, first of all, let me explain to you that ultimately we're all people of faith. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, if you're an atheist, you believe there is no God. You can't prove it. I believe there is one. I can't prove it in a science classroom either. You can't either. But ultimately, we're all people of faith. When, when these claims were made, some would say, listen, they just made these claims. They created these stories, these myths about Jesus. When these claims were made, Peter was making them in the presence of thousands of people who had just witnessed the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's why it says in the text, he said, these things God did in your midst. It means right in front of you. And he said, you yourselves know. It means you, you saw it, you know it, and you can't explain it away. Don't you think if this was made up, somebody would have raised their hand and said, uh, wait a minute, I, I call foul. I'm going to throw the challenge flag here. And yet, did you know there's not one recorded document that's been discovered in historical research that discredits the authenticity and reality of what Peter said on that day? Maybe they wouldn't have been bold enough to raise their hand in the crowd and object to what Peter was saying, but surely they would have gone home and written down and said, listen, I was at this event, and this is what happened, this is what he said, but I'm just telling you I saw it. Did you know that there have been 23,000 archaeological digs in history directly related to the historical events revealed in Scripture? 23,000 archaeological digs. And did you know that in 23,000 archaeological digs, there has not ever been one event in Scripture that had to be changed, rearranged, or rewritten? William Albright was one of the greatest archaeologists in United States history. He was the oldest director of the American Center for Research of Ancient Near Eastern Studies in the Middle East. He had his Ph.D. from John Hopkins University. They named the archaeological center in the Middle East the Albright School of Biblical Archaeology after his name and reputation. Listen to what that school produced. Here's what they said. Archaeology is a vast subject today, having specialized faculties, institutions, textbooks, and specialized journals all over the world. In the last century, rationalist critics were of the general opinion that with the growth of this subject, the Bible would be disproved and rejected eventually. But just the opposite has happened. 
Things disputed by the critics have turned out to be the way they are described in the Bible. The Bible history was confirmed like no other ancient book in the world. Also, there have been many cases when the wrong notions of the archaeologists were corrected by the Bible. There's at least one case in which a non-Christian archaeologist became a Christian when he saw the amazing accuracy of the Bible. Here's what I'm telling you. If you want to sit back there and say, well, everybody here, I mean, they've just turned their brains off. Now, here's the reality. If you don't take these claims seriously, you're the one that turns your brain off. Because there's scientific historical research to document these claims. You don't have to believe them, but you've got to deal with them. Ignoring them is not an option. Signs, the finger marks of God. What's he talking about? He's talking about the fulfilled prophecies of the Old Testament. Did you know that in the Old Testament there are 50 plus recorded prophecies clearly identifying who the Messiah was going to be? And when I say prophecies, I'm not talking about things like he'd wear a blue shirt. <laughs> Let me give you some examples. Isaiah prophesied that he would be born of a virgin 700 years before Jesus was born. That's a pretty bold prophecy, I would say. I don't know anybody else that's been born that way, do you? Micah pinpointed the place where he would be born, Bethlehem. Anybody in the room get to choose the city you were born in? Genesis and Jeremiah specified his ancestry. They, they prophesied that he would be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from the tribe of Judah, the house of David. Anybody pick your grandparents or your great-grandparents or your great-great-great? Listen, these are things we have absolutely no control over. The Psalms, the psalmist in Psalm 22, 41, and 35 foretold of his betrayal, his accusation before false witnesses, and the way he would die. The psalmist described crucifixion, get this, 600 years before crucifixion was invented as a means of execution. What that means the psalmist had never seen anybody crucified. He'd not read about anybody being crucified. It would be several generations before crucifixion was even invented. There are over 50 of these prophecies. Some of them from 200 to 1,500 years before Jesus was born. And here's what I want you to understand. Here's these finger marks of God. Jesus didn't just fulfill one or two of these. He fulfilled them all. Now, we live in Las Vegas. What are the odds? What are the odds of one man fulfilling all 50 plus of these prophecies? To be honest, the odds of one person fulfilling all 50 plus is a mathematical impossibility. So to put it in numbers, we can wrap our heads around, let's just take eight. The eight most difficult prophecies, where he was born, how he would die, who his grandparents were going to be. Do you know what the odds are of one person fulfilling just eight of those prophecies? It's one in 10 to the 17th power. You say, I don't get it. 
It's one followed by 17 zeros. Here's the probabilities. It's one out of this. Now, that's still such a big number, we can't wrap our heads around it, but one guy did some research. His name's Peter Stone. He wrote a book called Science Speaks, and he did the mathematical probability of this, and he came up with this illustration. He said, if you were going to take this, which is 100 quadrillion, and you were going to take half dollars, 100 quadrillion half dollars would cover the state of Texas two feet deep. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to blindfold you, and we're going to put you at the border of Oklahoma and Texas. We're going to mark one of those half dollars with a red X, and we're going to turn you loose. And we're going to let you take off across Texas and do the best you can to grab the one with the red X. That's the probability of Jesus fulfilling just eight of those prophecies. Listen, and he didn't just fulfill eight of them. All 50 of them are fulfilled in the person of Jesus. There's never been a life like his life. How's that possible? Here's how it's possible. He was more than a man. The Bible says about him, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Jesus is all that God is with skin on. Number two. There's never been a death like Jesus' death. Two aspects of his death I want to talk to you about. Number one, his death was part of God's plan. Did you hear what it said in verse 23? This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. His, his death was a part of God's plan. Here's what that means. The cross of Jesus Christ was no ambulance sent to an accident. The cross of Jesus Christ was a part of God's plan from eternity past. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why did Jesus need to die for me as an act of God's love for me? Well, I said earlier that every single one of us are unique. And you are unique because God created you in his own image, to be you. Our uniqueness is ultimately found in the creative, sovereign design of God. And God made us to know him and to love him and to be known and loved by him. You see, part of your unique story is that God designed you, God made you to live in fellowship with him. He made you to have a relationship with him. Meaning this, apart from a relationship with God, you and I will never discover the real meaning, purpose, value, significance of life. Okay, pastor, but what does that have to do with his death? You see, the problem is the problem of sin. In our uniqueness, we have a sameness. All of us have sinned against God. And our sin separates us from a relationship with God. We sang it earlier. Holy is he. Because God is holy, he will not be in fellowship with sin. So left to ourselves, you and I were cut off from a relationship with God, which is the very reason we were created to begin with. But his death was a part of God's plan. But here's the second part of this. His death was to atone for our sin. 
Did you hear what Peter said? He was delivered over by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But listen what he said next. He said, you crucified him and you killed him. Now, wait a minute, pastor. Aren't you talking? Wasn't he talking to the people that were there? I mean, those people literally lined the streets and said, crucify him. They literally drove the nails. Yes, in one sense, he was talking to them, but in another sense, he was talking to all of us. The word killed is a word that means to execute, to murder by execution. And what put Jesus on that cross ultimately was your sin and my sin. Let me show it to you. The Bible says in Romans 3, 23, for all have what? Say it out loud. All have sinned. It's a word that means to miss the mark. It means if you're trying to hit the bullseye, you get close, but you just don't hit the bullseye. God's bullseye, this standard of righteousness as designed and, de and, and defined by God himself, we've all missed it. We've all fallen short of it. How many of you would admit today you have at at least one time in your life sinned against God? Let me see your hand. If you didn't raise your hand then, you can now. <laughs> because you just lied. All have sinned, if we look back in the past... There's the past. We all have sinned, and here's the present and future. We all continue to fall short. It's not like my sin is relegated to the past, and I don't do that anymore. No, I still every day fall short of the righteous standard of God. I think everybody in the room would say, yep, that's me. I'm not perfect. Okay, what's the big deal? Here's the big deal. Romans 6, 23 says the wages of sin is what? Now, you know what a wage is. If you work 40 hours this week and you make $10 an hour, you earn $400. It's yours. It belongs to you. It's a wage, right? You deserve it. The Bible says because we've all sinned, we earn something. It's ours. We deserve it. We all deserve death. What is death? Physical death, yes, but ultimately it's bigger than that. Physical death leads to eternal death and separation from God. Because of my sin, I'm cut off from a relationship with God. So the only option I have is to die and spend eternity separated from God or an eternal one. Steps into time, takes all of your sin and my sin on himself. And on the cross, he dies in our place. And that's exactly what happened 2,000 years ago at Calvary. Jesus is God who came into the world, took all of your sin and my sin on himself, and on the cross, he died. That's why the, the writer, Paul, said it this way in Romans 5. He said, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, what does it say? Christ what? He died, he died in our place. There's never been a death like his death. He died to pay the penalty of your sin and my sin. He died to remove the sin that separated us from God so that we could be reconciled back to God. But listen, if all he did was die, how could we know with certainty 
that it atoned for our sin. But you see, the story of Easter is not just that there's never been a life like his life and there's never been a death like his death. Listen to me. There's never been a grave like his grave. Look at verse 24. God raised him up. As a testimony, they had accepted his death for our sin. God raised him up, declaring once and for all that the sin that separated you and me from God had been dealt with and paid for. Many have been compared to Jesus through the years. Muhammad chief prophet of Islam he claimed to be God's chief prophet he said yes Jesus was a prophet but I'm the chief prophet but on June the 8th 632 AD Muhammad died in Medina today you can visit the mosque in Saudi Arabia where his remains are and you can pay homage to the remains of Muhammad Gandhi Claim to know the truth about spirituality and God, but on June the 30th, 1948, he was shot and killed. And then his ashes were scattered throughout India. The next day, the national newspaper, the Hindustan, the Hindustan Standard, reported this Gandhi has been killed. The second crucifixion in the history of the world has been enacted on a Friday. The same day Jesus was done to death 1,915 years ago. Listen to me. Gandhi may have had a Friday. Like Jesus' Friday. But he did not have a Sunday. Like Jesus' Sunday. Today you can visit the tomb of Muhammad. And you can go to the site where Gandhi's ashes were dispersed. But when you go to Jerusalem and you find the tomb of Jesus, listen to me, he is not there. He is alive. How do I know that he's the only way? Because he's the only one who beat death. Listen, do you hear what the Bible said? Its, its cords could not hold him. Well, preacher, how do I get in on it? Paul wrote it this way in Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. Hear me. You will be saved. It happened for me in 1989. I was a freshman in college at the University of North Alabama, and I heard the gospel, the message that I've shared with you this very night. I heard the good news of Jesus. I'd heard it other times before, but something about the way I heard it then, the Holy Spirit of God 
convinced me that it was true and I knelt down beside my bed and I surrendered the control of my life to Jesus. I confessed him as my Lord. I believed on him with my heart and right there in that moment, I experienced the forgiveness of God in salvation. And here's what I know now today. I'm not who I am based on how I perform today. I'm who I am based on what happened 2,000 years ago on a cross and an empty tomb. My identity is who I am in Christ. And because of Jesus, I now stand as a loved, accepted child of the Father with an eternal destiny in heaven secure forever. And the same thing can be true of you today if you will believe in Him. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would move in convicting power. I'm going to ask Christians all over this building right now to do one of two things. You either just sit there and praise Jesus because of what you've heard, the gospel again, and how excited you are about who he is and what he's done for you. Or secondly, you pray for people in this room right now who do not know Jesus, that God would open their hearts to the gospel. If you're here right now and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, you've never believed on him, you've never surrendered the control of your life to Jesus, but you'd like to do that right now. For the very first time in your life, you're ready to do what I did as a freshman in college, 1989. You're ready to cry out to God and ask Him to be, ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior and to forgive you of your sins. With nobody looking around right now, if you want to cry out to God and give your life to Jesus for the very first time in your life, I'm going to lead you in a word of prayer. It's not the words of a prayer that save you, it's faith in the person of Jesus that saves. But one of the ways we can put our faith in him is by prayer. The Bible says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Right there where you're sitting, you just pray this to the Lord. You say, Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that you died on a cross for my sin. I know that you rose again from the dead. I know that you are God. And right now, Jesus, I turn from my sin and I trust in you. I ask you to be my Lord and my Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Now, with nobody looking around right now but me, if you just prayed with me for the very first time and you put your faith in Jesus, I want to pray for you, but I want to know where you are before I pray for you. So I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to make you come down here. I just want to see you. So with nobody looking right now but me, if you just prayed with me for the first time in your life to put your faith and trust in Jesus, would you just slip your hand up and just hold it up for just a second? Just slip it up and just hold it up. I just want to see where you are. God bless you, sir. I see you. Just hold it up for a second. God bless you. God bless you. Somebody else? God bless you. What about here in the middle? God bless you, sir. God bless you. God bless you. So thankful. What about over here on this side to my right? God bless you. Yes, thank you. God bless you. God bless you. Hands all over the building. 
Thank God that God is in the saving business. Amen. There's eternal stuff happening right now. Listen, if you just prayed with me to receive Christ, and, and again, nobody's looking yet but me. If you just prayed, I want you to just look up at me. Just look at me. Just look at me. Nobody's looking but me and you. Just look up at me. If you've given your life to Christ, listen, I want to be the first person to tell you something. You ready? Welcome to the family of God. Listen. All of your sin, past, present, and future, has been sealed and taken care of in Christ. Jesus paid it all. Now all to him I owe. You didn't just make a decision. You just began a new journey in life. You have been forgiven. You have a home in heaven. Now I'm going to pray for you. Let's do it. Let me pray. God, thank you for every one of these people that's looking at me right now that raised their hand. God, thank you for the eternal transaction that's taken place because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would flood their soul with assurance. God, that they would know that they would know that they would know that they're your child. God, I pray they would feel the the, the weight and the guilt of sin being removed and that they would know right now they are right with you. Not on the basis of their performance, but on the basis of their position in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the miracle of the gospel. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Would you let all of them know how excited we are for them? Amen. Let them know. We are so excited for you.